0: This bonus episode of Forum Correspondence. I had such a great conversation with Allison Wilmore, a film critic for New York Magazine, that I couldn't stand to leave these extra 25 minutes in the vault. You're probably listening to the full episode, thinking, Jake, why didn't you ask her about how New York Mag works? Well, I did, and you'll find that here. Allison will tell us a bit more about the working environment for critics, with the demise of newspapers, the dearth of full-time jobs, and how she looks at writing for both print and online. She'll also get into some important qualities in a film critic. That's it. Please enjoy this mini bonus episode. And if you haven't yet, go check out the full interview with Allison.
1: When I started, it was right when there was this enormous kind of like die off of the film critic position at newspapers, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, for a long time. That was just a job you could have at a newspaper. (laughs) Most newspapers, you know, that were in any kind of larger market, they had a a film critic. And, you know, you could syndicate film reviews, but a lot of places also had their own and wanted to have their own. And, you know, it's not really surprising that when newspapers really started to take a hit, that film critic was one of the first jobs that went because it just wasn't deemed essential (laughs) And, you know, the rise of the kind of like online publications was happening in the, this was like the 2000s, the kind of mid 2000s, late 2000s. It was interesting to be writing online and to, you know, this sounds like it's just hard to think about now, but there was so much suspicion with regard to writers who are coming up online. You were upstarts. You were, uh, who were you? Where did you come from? You were, you know taking down the old order, etc. And so it was odd to kind of inherit this narrative of kind of like challenging the traditional order of print media. When I was like, I just want to write.
0: I mean, when you got into this, was your overriding principle that you just wanted to write? Because obviously Wired was something very different. And I mean, you were just looking for whatever the outlet was and you happened to fall into film or did you have some idea that you wanted to do film? Or were you dead set on being a journalist? Or was it just more a, a more general desire to write?
1: I wanted to do pop culture, journalism, but specifically film criticism. Film criticism just felt like something you had to find your way to eventually, which like, continues to be true. And I would say Wired was the first place I got to write a film review. I wrote a like little front of book blurb about... I don't even remember what it was, but, you know, it was like something that was new on DVD that was like within the kind of wired brand. So the truth is, especially as the idea of pop culture and film entertainment coverage started to not become a priority at a lot of general publications, like moving to New York had seemed even more important. That is where most of the publications that either focus on film or kind of still invest in it in a significant way were based. So yeah, you know, I made my way there with the end goal to hopefully get to write about film in some way. But yeah, no idea of how to get into that also. So like IFC had been adjacent to a lot of these things that I liked and it turned out to be a place that I could, I actually could write about film, um, which was really exciting. But I think... You know, it's really easy to, especially in that point in your life and your career when you're just trying to get started. I think you can like circle forever feeling like you're just kind of pounding on a lot of doors and not sure how to get in. And I don't think there is, especially with film criticism, which is something that is like increasingly just not a full time job that many people have at all. It can feel like you can try forever, you know, and I think a lot of people just kind of either feel like they're waiting for one of the very few jobs to open up, or they feel like they're just confounded by how anyone ever gets work in this field. And I felt that way a lot in the beginning. But I also, I just had a lot of luck in finding my way into a job that allowed me to write a lot, but also that allowed me to learn a lot. You know, I had to figure out how to communicate with film publicists, how to fight with publicists when need be, you know, how to <laughs> how to kind of deal with freelancers, how to do junkets if that's something you wanted to do, how to get interviews, how, you know, like all of those things were things that I had to figure out on my own, sometimes not very efficiently, but wow. I also just, it taught me so much, you know? And I, I, I think that... I was lucky in some ways in that I got to kind of start off at a place that slowly built up its readership. Because I think getting thrown in, especially for our online outlets at the time, that was like Gawker was in its kind of heyday. Right. You know, and I have a lot of friends who have come through Gawker who still, as much as it taught them a lot, they still have like scars (laughs) from it as well as like a workplace, but also as a place where they're like, oh God, I wish I hadn't written that and now it lives online forever. (laughs) You know, so. uh, Although
0: I guess it doesn't anymore in the case of Gawker. Did they take everything down? I can't remember. I
1: think you can probably still find things. I mean, the internet never forgets, right? Right. If you really want to find it.
0: I was curious about the balance, yeah, between freelance and full time in your career. I wasn't sure if some of those were freelance and some were full time. It does seem like you know film criticism is one of those things that leans like overwhelmingly freelance. I guess I was just curious about your thoughts on that
1: yeah, you know i I think my career has been unusual in that I have mostly had staff positions, and I feel really kind of lucky slash sheltered in some ways by that experience. I was only really freelance for that period after IFC and before IndieWire brought me on first as a kind of contract position and then they brought me on staff not long after. So so yeah, I happen to have a lot of staff positions and that is not the norm, I would say, for the industry. Film criticism, you know, there tend to be like... Maybe at the places that do still have staff, staff critics, there will be one or two staff critics, and then everything else is filled out by freelancers. And I think like one of the reasons that film criticism can be so difficult to make a living in is that film reviews often don't pay that well for freelancers. They can pay from between nothing (laughs) to (laughs) 200, maybe $500 if you're lucky. But they're generally looked at as like a kind of easier lift, I think, which is not always true, but I think that they're also just like not always that widely read these days. I think like one of the things that's really been hard for film criticism, and I, I would say this is more a symptom, but like, You know, you have something like Rotten Tomatoes. It is a number that is a hugely influential number for a movie. This kind of ruling as whether it's fresh or rotten and like what percentage that is made up from aggregating reviews, but doesn't really drive many people to click through to actually read those reviews, you know, unless you are the outlier, the anomaly then people often get mad at you, right? They click through because they're angry. <laughs> but but otherwise, you know, there's not that much of an incentive if you're someone who places a lot of value on Rotten Tomatoes as a kind of guidance or, like, whatever the kind of mental weight people put on scores now. Like, there's just not a lot of incentive to click through and actually read why someone arrived at that point. So especially for smaller movies, I think it's been challenging to make a living off of writing those reviews because there's just not a lot of pay because the readership is lower. And there are a lot of people who want to do it. So it's a tough market. And I happened to survive on it when I was in that particular period when I was freelancing, but it was because I was really lucky. I had a lot of people reach out to me and and offer me work. But yeah, I do know some people who actually make a living off of it. Though, like They're absolutely people who do and can. It's never just writing criticism, though. It's always doing a mix of things. Oftentimes, you know, there are people I know who are great critics who are freelance now and write almost no reviews in the traditional sense. They pay the bills with features and interviews and lists, investigative pieces and essays. But the classic review it doesn't have the same editorial value, I think, right now, unfortunately, that it used to. I think instead, there's a lot more interest in essays or takes, you know, (laughs) and there could be a blurry line between those two. So I have been lucky in that I've had staff jobs, but there just aren't many staff jobs these days in film journalism and, and criticism. So it's a tough thing to make your way towards sometimes.
0: Right. And I mentioned in my email to you, I'm a dedicated New York magazine reader. I lived in New York briefly after I graduated and I had an ex-girlfriend who was a fact checker at New York magazine. And I started reading it then. I've just kind of always read it since then, whenever I can get a copy. I mean, in China, when I was living there, it was not very easy In Brazil, somehow I managed to get it delivered here. It's impressive. It actually hasn't shown up in about three months. (laughs) I need to call them uh, and figure out what the deal is with that. It should have renewed, but it might be the postal system here. Yeah, I mean, I've always enjoyed reading the, the film criticism. You know, it used to always be David Edelstein, and now it's a bit more varied, but... In my broader life, do I go out seeking it? No, film criticism? Not, not so much. I mean, when I was younger, I and Roger Ebert was alive, I remember reading all of his reviews, but it was kind of this uh, narrow thing that, I don't know, unless I was presented with it, I didn't necessarily go... Seek it out. Mm-hmm. I guess if it's not too prying, just to I've got some more miscellaneous questions sure. now that we've gotten to the the present. Uh, if it's not too prying into how New York Magazine works, I was curious. I did know at the beginning of the pandemic that they announced that they were furloughing some people, and like I don't think David Edelstein's reviews have appeared since then. But it's been interesting since then because now it seems like there's more different people writing. You know, it's not you every time, it's not him every time, it's not. You know, it seems like there are three, four or five different names I always see. And uh, you joined right before the pandemic. And I was just wondering how they were managing all of this. And
1: uh, yeah, so I when I started, David was still there. And, you know, I was not sure how that would work. There's always been a second critic under David because one person, you know, can't. David has been at New York Magazine for or was at New York Magazine for years. Coming off of BuzzFeed, I had, you know, I was, like, very leery of of that just because I had a huge amount of freedom at BuzzFeed to write about whatever I wanted, really. But, you know, I was told, like, no, it, like, it will make sure that you get to review things that you want as well. And so I started and everything was kind of divided up between... David, and then Bilga, my colleague, Bilga Ibiri, who is still a film critic and film writer at the magazine, but he was doing editing half the time and then writing film reviews the other half of the time. Also, Angelica Bastian, who kind of spreads her time between doing TV criticism and film criticism, and me. And I, you know, definitely didn't feel like very possessive over anything particular. I just wanted to make sure that I got to review things that I felt invested in. You know, we had an editor who kind of, I think, did a good job of spreading those out, but obviously there's always like a kind of testiness when everyone wants to compete for the same one big title. I started and then a month later Vox acquired New York magazine. Uh. Yeah. And I, you know, wasn't really sure what to think of that at first, but it actually I think has worked out really well for everyone. Vox has a lot of financial stability and I think New York Magazine kinda of fills in a spot that they didn't have in their roster of like different outlets that like New York Magazine kinda of brings something very different in terms of tone and in terms of kind of history. So I think it's worked out well, but it was a lot of shaking up right after I started. And yes, then the the pandemic happened. Was it a year? God, I don't know. You know, it was long enough that I had gone to Sundance. Anyway, David was one of the people who was furloughed. There were other people on the Vulture team that were furloughed and who didn't come back. Some of the people overall who were furloughed did come back, It was kind of left up to the people who took the buyouts, whether they wanted to announce it or not. And I think David did on Facebook. But yeah, you know, he had been around for a long, long time. He'd been hired, I think it was like one of the earliest hires from Adam Moss and someone who I'd read forever. And, you know, at this point, it's just me and Bilga doing criticism and Angelica sometimes. And then especially when things have been busier, sometimes people will be called in from other teams just as they have the interest and opportunity. Our theater critic, Helen Shaw, has like, obviously had maybe the toughest time <laughs> during the pandemic in terms of your normal routine. But she she has filled in to do some film reviews, which I, I've loved. And someone from the TV side has occasionally done things. So I love that, honestly. I, I think the idea of... The days of the one chief film critic are over at New York Magazine, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think like having a kind of plethora of voices is better for the writing and you know for readership. So yeah, you know that's been how things have been operating, and I think you know for me, I love writing reviews, the kind of classic reviews, but I also my big interest and it was part of the reason that I was brought in, I think was that I like writing essays and, you know, longer form works of criticism that don't necessarily fit into the category of the straightforward review. And I think in some ways, that's like the thing I'm strongest at. So that is like consumes like a a half my time, at least in the job, and it continues to. And the last month, I was able to write my first like big profile, it was the cover story. It was Chloe Zhao, who is probably going to win best picture, you know, with her film Nomadland. I did a profile of her. And it was her first cover. And that was really exciting. Oh wow! And, And I was thrilled to get to do that. Yeah. So, so, you know, I think I have never been particularly there, there is a kind of school of criticism, where there's a, you know, idea of the kind of purity of it. And I understand that intellectually, but it's not something that I really, I believe in for myself, nor do I think it's really practical. (laughs) You know, if you want to work as a film critic today, you also should know how to interview people. You should also know how to write essays. You should also not be above writing lists, you know, and I think having that looseness, I got to, you know, write that profile piece, which I was thrilled about.
0: Yeah. I guess I do have to bug them about my subscription. I don't think I've gotten <laughs> that one yet. But uh, that's cool to hear how everything works there. I, I And I mean, obviously, your output is much, much more than the, the print magazine. And New York has kind of a reputation as an editor's magazine, right? Mm. And so, I mean, I assume a lot of your stuff is written, not necessarily thinking if it's going to go in the magazine or not. And like, you know, they pick one review to highlight in the magazine is it that sort of situation
1: Certainly I mostly think about things as they live digitally and yeah things get kind of like selected ahead of time or kind of called up into the magazine into the print side as appropriate but there's a lot more back and forth I think than still a lot of other print magazines do and I think that's a real positive you know long long ago when I was at Wired this is how long ago it was like it wasn't that Wired didn't even communicate with its website. Wired had sold off its website to a separate company. That's funny. Wired.com was owned by like Lycos or something. Like they did their own editorial content that really wasn't in communication with the magazine, which is like a kind of batshit thing to think about. But was exactly how online content was thought about for such a long time as like really not just secondary, but like having no bearing on print. So. I think like, it's not always perfect at New York Magazine, in, like in, like no place, you know, it's not like seamless. But I think there's a lot more of a kind of like positive, there's a transparency and there's like a movement between online and print that I think is like the way forward for a magazine.
0: And then what is one thing you wish you could travel back in time and tell your younger self?
1: I would tell my younger self to not worry so much about hurting people's feelings. I think like um, (laughs) it's funny that like that whole smarm versus snark era coming up through like a lot of online writing, having this particular tone, I felt really interested in it, but also I think I've always, and it's something that's like, I, I think a problem, something that I always have had to fight when I do interviews, which is my natural inclination is to always smooth over discomfort in conversations which is not, I think, like very useful when you're talking to someone who maybe you want to be a bit uncomfortable, <laughs> you know, or maybe you need to ask some kind of difficult questions. And I think it took a long time for me and i still like something I work on, but like it's still, it took a long time for me to push past that. The people who are best at interviews and I think sometimes like it can be a natural talent being a reporter if you are a little calloused <laughs> in that way. Do you know what I mean?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: To the person you're talking to is like cues with regard to discomfort. If you don't feel particularly attuned to them, I think you can ask better questions or kind of like push into territory that is more valuable to you. Obviously, the other side of that is just like, as a reporter, sometimes you're kind of bulldozing uh, through people's uh, feelings, but past people's feelings. But I I think like professionally, that can be a good thing and really useful.
0: Right. Yeah, it's definitely... A balance between like a lot of people I know call it like being more transactional versus being more (laughs) like tuned into empathetic with the other person. Right. And it depends on the situation. What is your most embarrassing journalism related incident?
1: Yeah, I don't know if I have like, this is not even like that. It's related to I guess what I just said. But like, this is not even that interesting. I'm sorry. When I was writing that blog for IFC when I was very young, it took a while to kind of build up a readership and I wasn't exposed to traffic numbers. So I really kind of felt like I was writing it in a vacuum and the director of a movie that was like a big premiere at Sundance that I hated. I had like written something about it and he emailed me to be like, wow, you really hate my movies. And it was funny because (laughs) I just like hadn't the idea that someone, that anyone was reading it has just like never crossed my mind. And I ended up doing an interview with him later and I feel like the embarrassment in this story goes both ways. I think that, like, I wouldn't have written what I'd written quite the same way if I had actually thought about the possibility he would have read it. Not because I needed to be gentle on him, but just because I think it was probably a bit, like, a bit easy, a bit, like, empty, a bit snarky. But on the other side, I wish I'd fought him in the interview more. <laughs> About, you know what (laughs) I mean? Like, I think that, like, it's that balance of being like, empty snark is, like, very easy and doesn't last, but actually kind of challenging someone. That is good journalism, you know, with regard to at least, like, challenging someone with regard to the things that really bothered me about his movie. And I felt like I kind of failed on both sides of that. It was partially just because I was really junior. But yeah, I do think about that a lot and kind of just like. I felt like it was like a twice kind of like disappointed myself.
0: Yeah. Well, everybody has to learn somehow. Got to make some mistakes. (laughs) Um, And then how do you manage your work-life balance?
1: I don't. Uh, I have a terrible work-life balance. Uh, It's especially hard when what you're writing about is entertainment, you know? Right. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's hard for me to really answer that question because I think the pandemic has thrown all of that off anyway you're sitting all day working on your screen and you're like ah I'm done for the day let me look at the screen for fun now <laughs> the right. same screen um yeah so I think like you know I I was better at it before this and that pandemic has really obliterated a lot of like boundaries I would put around my time in that way but I just try and I've tried to kind of bow to my personal schedule, and like in terms of when I write best, which is often like in the early morning, in the morning, I'm much better then. And then to adjust my work schedule so that if I've been up for hours working, then I can try and take breathers and windows or knock off early. I'm always putting in plenty of hours and getting my work done. But I think like all writers, we work better at sometimes than others. And it's not always within the windows of like nine to six or, you know, whatever office hours are. And I think giving myself a break in that regard of not trying to need to be extremely online during that period and also be writing in the morning before then or at night after, that has, I think, been the most helpful for me.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I feel that for sure. Like there was a while when I Sometimes still I'd like try to keep a nine to six and I ask myself like, well, am I really being the most productive right, right. now? I, I don't know that I am like, okay. Yeah. I was online at nine, but like I'm more of a, a late person. Like yeah. I think I get more done if I start later. Um, what do you think you bring to the table that makes you a good journalist?
1: One, I'd like to think that I, I try to bring as little baggage when I'm watching something as possible I try and go into everything wanting to be impressed by it, but also to try and leave as much behind in terms of, like, people's past work, necessarily. I don't always try and get on board with someone's, like, kind of whole career. I want to see each movie as it comes along. But I would say also, like, I think about the writing. that Like, that's important to me. I, I think there are a lot of times when people get into film criticism or want to, they think more about the kind of theory and background side, and those are certainly important. But I think being able to write is the most important and I certainly won't like pat myself on the back with that too much but it's I think like always been something I've understood as like you know the reason that criticism is is something that you want to read is because it's well written right like everything all of like the analysis and the kind of knowledge that you bring to it is support like it's held up by the quality of the writing and and yeah, I think that like what sometimes when people want to get into it, it is the thing that, that it takes them the longest time to come around to. You can know everything about film, but if your writing is just like dry or, you know, lifeless, no one's going to read you. <laughs> so I, I think that's it. Like I have always tried to think about things as a piece of writing first.
0: Right. Yeah. And I, I would say one thing I would say about all the film criticism that I like the most is there's always the people I like the most always have a little bit of humor when they bring it to the writing like it isn't all 100% self-serious all the way Mm -hmm. through and I think that's New York does that very well and a lot of the critics that I like the most and that is more about the experience of reading it than like you know knowing everything about film.